You're listening to the horror. Welcome to the horror. I'm Russell Sharman. And I'm Owen Edgerton. We're two film nerds. One of us loves horror. And the other one doesn't. And one of us is correct. Welcome to episode two, our second, our, our neo-virginal po- podcast. What's the opposite of penultimate? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Someone go look it up. <laughs> I'll get our intern to look that up. Although, depending on how this goes, this could be the penultimate. One that's, more and we're done. That's true. That's true. In fact, if Texas Chainsaw Massacre is any indication of where this is going, it could oh, indeed. My gosh. Be the Already. It's amazing how quick you just go there. Okay. So, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, 1974 horror film. It was uh, directed by Toby Hooper. It was his second film, kind of made his career. He's most famous for it. He also made Poltergeist. He directed that for Steven Spielberg. It was uh, co-written and co-produced uh, with Kim Hinkle, an incredible cast of mainly local folks here in the Austin area. It it uh, shattered records. It was an amazing film, did all kinds of wonderful things, and is, a, is considered a classic uh, in, the, in the horror archives. In fact, I think to anyone who understands art or humanity, uh, considers it a classic, incredible film. What did you? Was this your first time to see it? Yes, yes, it, yes, it was. Oh my god! I think I've seen. I think we may have had this conversation offline, but I, I've seen one of them, and <laughs> there was a guy with a coat hanger scratching a wound in his head. Yes, that's that, all I remember. That is Texas Chainsaw Massacre Two, a much okay. different film, much different so I just film. Jumped. I just yes, skipped, skipped right to it. Yeah, but but also Toby Hooper. Toby Hooper. That's the only other one that Toby Hooper. Uh, directed well you know i uh was having dinner with my wife and i was telling her all about this podcast and our experience with night living dead and she sort of stopped and and she realized oh my gosh you have created this situation where you have to watch (laughs) these movies what have you done to yourself (laughs) and i thought you know it's fine it's fine uh how how bad can they be and then I watched uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and I the whole time I'm thinking, what have I done? What what have I done to myself, subjecting myself? To- you know, when I take my puppy to the park, sometimes my puppy just instinctively knows it needs to eat certain pieces of grass, certain certain plants, and it only knows not because it's thinking, but because its gut tells it this is right for it. This is what you've done. You you're 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 doing your body good. <laughs> this is actually some deep seated need. To connect yes. with yes. horror, yes, yes, and, and and all of my protestations are defense mechanisms. Yes, of course, and that's why it's going to take a long time. But you know who's patient and loves you, your buddy Owen. You know who's you know who's not patient is the person who has to sit through the first hour of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Whoa! Wow. Okay. All right. So, <laughs> so this is your first time to watch it. Which the first hour is like a home movie of four kids in a van. You, you watched it, and 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 Chris Farley. In a wheelchair. Oh. <laughs> so you, you watched it at home uh, on your computer, I imagine. Yes. Is this what you did? I did. Okay. This may be a trend. I don't know where else I'm going to see these. So. Well, I mean, it's true. I mean, uh, it gets a lot of screenings. It's 16 millimeter. I will print. say, and this is not a plug. This is the second uh, week in a row. Uh, but I was, I could not find it. I could not find Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Shockingly, the local Arkansas public library did not have a copy nor did the university of arkansas and so i i signed up for a free trial of shutter oh so that i could watch texas chainsaw massacre i was about to say it's like russell you should have shutter uh i love shutter 
<laughs> hey, Shutter, pay us some money. Just I, hopefully they will. I, I keep promoting them accidentally on other podcasts, uh, but yeah, I'm a big fan of Shutter. Uh, they do, and that's I was going to say. That's the best place to go watch it. They they actually have my movie Follow right now, but I think it's going to be disappearing in a little while. But uh, Shutter's all right, man. That's I'm glad you watched it on Shutter. Welcome to the family. <laughs> Is that a pun on Texas Chainsaw Master? Ooh, that's good. Okay, so what? It, l- let's see. Did, for those people out there who are listening who don't know the basic plot of Texas Chainsaw there Massacre, there is there is a a brother and sister and a, a couple of friends. They go out into the Texas rural landscape because they have heard that uh, a cemetery has been disturbed and some of their relatives were at this cemetery. So it opens up with these incredibly disturbing shots photographs of decomposed bodies being repositioned into weird modern art type things. Uh, as they continue on their road trip, they pick, pick up a hitchhiker. He's really freaky. He used to work at the meat slaughtering house. He uh, ends up cutting one of them, see, seems to do some kind of spell on them. Uh, they stop by a gas station that sells barbecue, but they find out they don't have gas at the gas station. They visit an old house that used to be kind of like the grandparents' house, and they wander down to the one house they should never touch. And that's when the horror really begins. Yeah, again, like an, an hour in. <laughs> but the opening is incredible. Don't get me wrong. There is a lot of interesting things going on in this film. I, You know, mm-hmm. my, my feelings about it are from a sort of 30,000-foot macro view. But I, I agree. The opening was very affecting. Uh, the sound design is actually, well, I've got two feelings about sound design in this movie. Some of it is very affecting. Some of it is just a wall of noise. I mean, I get that Chainsaw is in the title, but between the generator and the chainsaw and the incessant screaming of Blondie, whatever her name was, for a good half of the movie, that's all you hear. But when that's not happening, I did think the sound design was pretty good. I think you mean Marilyn Burns and referring to her as Blondie. Is that is that what film professors do at your university? Not, you know, it's a point of pride. I'm not looking this up on IMDb to remind myself of their names. Well, that's, I appreciate that. Franklin. Franklin's the guy in the wheelchair. Yes. Right? Yes, he is. Okay. And uh, and he does. He was played by uh, Paul Partian. And uh, he does some great. He's done some great interviews, just talking about being on set because it was a wild production. The production of this was uh, made. You know, these folks were making it for not very much money. Um, a lot of them were just out of film school. There was a lot of sort of a suspicions that maybe the filmmakers didn't know exactly what they're doing, and and so there were some crazy, crazy parts of the set, including, and we'll get to this later, but the twenty-four hour day of shooting, which is that dinner scene. That dinner scene, which was done in one 24-hour uh, stent, terrifying uh, in itself. But yeah, but the sound stuff was even done, you know, like t- Toby Hooper talks about just sort of trying to make up different weird sounds in an apartment of like, what happens if we take this and creak it, and twist that and creak it? So I love the sound of that, uh, the photograph being taken. It's it's a wild, crazy sound that I, I hadn't really remembered hearing before in a film. And it's just become maybe the... More so for me than a chainsaw, that sound. <laughs> I should look up how they made it, but that sound, it like I that think is... that's what they just they went into the future and got you doing that. I'm pretty good, huh? And put it in there. <laughs> the sound design's so crazy, it's so creepy. Uh, and then the and then there's the great uh, John Laroquette with the voiceover in the beginning, which I have to admit I did not I didn't realize it was him until the credits. Yeah. Oh, I see. But uh, a great voice, isn't it? A great for that voice. opening. Yes. Yes. 
long before Night Court made him a star, he was the voice of horror. Um, so you felt it started out too slow. Okay, I, I, of course, I completely disagree. But l- l- first, we're at the great well, side. Let me let me clarify. Yeah. Let me clarify. It it opens strong. It opens strong with those visuals in the graveyard, um, and I appreciate that. Yeah. And and I thought it was doing some interesting things again with sound design and the the voiceover of the newscast. Yeah. And and that that was such sort of a forward foreground sound that it really made me pay attention. And I was trying to find the thread. The only thread I could really find was was just this overall sense of the world going to pieces. Uh, just a, a string of stories, it seemed, around this theme of bad things happening, uh, which I guess is just the news, uh, really, when sure. you think about it. But also you saw the shots uh, of the sun, too. Like, it, there was... There was a little bit of a astronomical reasons too. Right. And then there's, of course, the dialogue about astrology in the van. It's just, when I say it dragged a bit for me, Yeah, was, you know, until that first kill, which admittedly was a shocker. Yes. I had to rewind it because I almost missed it. It happened so fast. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I did audibly gasp. But until that, I do think that's like a, a, the hour mark. Maybe 45 minutes. No, I think you're right. I think it is about that. But, you know, first you have you have that hitchhiker. And the hitchhiker is kind of the first member of the family that we meet. What did you think about that scene, you know, when he's in the uh, in the car? Uh, well, for, it definitely... Okay, so another thing we perhaps will talk about uh, in a bit is like Night of the Living Dead, I understand that Chainsaw is responsible for Friday the 13th, Halloween. Like, those movies don't happen without a lot of what this movie does. Yeah. And one of the tropes that I think maybe it invents even is the, why are you doing that? What are you doing? That is a dumb decision. <laughs> uh, it's the don't go down in the basement moment when they pick up the hitchhiker. One of them even says he looks, you know, weird or whatever she says. Yeah. Um, so that was like that first moment. And then as he's cutting himself, I'm thinking, pull over. Pull, why are you not pulling over? What is, why are you not pulling over? What is the happening? 70s, dude. It was... <laughs> Uh, so, so that was definitely freaky, but it was hard for me to get out of my head of how nonsensical it it was. Um, also, uh, James Franco couldn't get past it. Was Chris Farley and James Franco in some weird sketch comedy routine in the back of that van? Their interaction uh, was interesting. That was Edward Neal. Uh, Ed, oh, Edwin, Edwin Neal, I believe, he plays the uh, hitchhiker. He's awesome. Uh, no, I mean, he was definitely an affecting performance, which is more than I can say for most people in the film. Oh, my God. Uh, okay, well, I think you actually, you stumbled upon something that I think is really cool. So, th- there's, there's probably been a lot more written about this this particular movie, maybe than would seem necessary. I, I, I've read countless articles and at least one book all about this movie. But part of it is, like, there is a level of absurdity. I mean, Toby Cooper said a bunch of different things about the movie but one of the things he said is like it's all about meat so they're passing the slaughterhouse which is where the oh, hitchhiker yeah. says he used to work and they talk about the different ways of like they've got the gun now the air gun that sh- kills the animals like no the old way was better with the hammer but there is like a level of absurdity right without a doubt like this is one of the things i love about the movie and i know we talked about this in the last one as an independent movie of like again this is a movie where i i don't trust the filmmakers there's enough of a, a, a an expertise like the, the cinematography is pretty good for what they've got but the quality is film well, the, the one yeah. thing that I wanted to praise about it. Yeah. Even if it was showy and overdone was how he moved the camera. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of really interesting tracking shots and dolly shots. I mean, he laid a lot of track 
Yes. <laughs> Often unmotivated and for no good narrative reason, but still beautiful to look at. That shot under the swing. Oh, yeah. As she's approaching the house. And to your point, the cross-cutting with the cattle. Yep. To me, even before I knew what was coming, I, I recognized there was this very intentional visual association between the kids in the van being led to slaughter. Right, right. And that's compelling visual stuff. Like, that is respectable filmmaking. And I can appreciate that, which is why I actually, I didn't feel like the filmmaker didn't know what they were doing. I actually felt in better hands than I did in Night of the Living Dead. Oh, okay. In terms cool. of craft, which almost made the, the lack of any kind of thematic intent or redeemable narrative more frustrating. What the hell does redeemable narrative mean? Like, like the, the, there's no, I, there's no you mean story le here. A lesson or a story? You mean that no- well, I don't need a lifetime, you know, Ginny eats something after school special, but I, I do need a sense of like, this is about something rather than just a kind of a depraved uh, window into uh, grotesquerie. Mm, I see what you're saying. So you you feel that it's it's simply a display of, of the grotesque, uh, with without uh, uh, absolutely. So so without question. So let's follow Sally. Right, she's our our main character. Right, but you could say another way. Other people have sort of interpreted this like, no, Leatherface is your main character. Uh, Leatherface is sort of the the put upon character whose house is constantly invaded. You know, I mean, he's, he he keeps getting his house. They people keep showing up at his house. What's he? There's a you know a scene at one point. What's when, he to do? What's he? He does that scene. Remember when he rushes into kind of the living room and he he's looking out the window and he's like, oh, where do they keep? What's going on? What's going on? I've had to kill two of them now. And let me let me just say, I I was genuinely affected by that moment. All all uh, sort of critique aside, I thought that was kind of a beautiful little moment of creating some empathy or sympathy with that character. I, I did in that moment feel that there was tragedy here. There was something kind of human, <laughs> which is a weird thing to say in this movie, um, <laughs> and interesting about about that moment. Unfortunately, that was the only moment I felt that. <laughs> okay, so we're moving forward. I, 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 so I think you're right. That first kill is incredible. The guy goes up to the door, and all of a sudden, Leatherface is there. He grabs him, it's a, and the door slams shut. Like it's gone, right? It's just uh, like so dramatic. And then, of course, the girl on the hook. Uh, is got that in in incredibly crazy scene. Now, one of the things that's uh, really fascinating about this film, you've sort of talked about the macabre and the gore. Uh, I don't even think you, I'm not sure if you mentioned the word gore, did, but this film is, a, a, of course, a, a reputation of being incredibly gory. But if you watch it, there's almost no blood. There's almost no actual gore. Every time there's going to be a moment of gore, the camera cuts away to something else, including maybe the most famous of the gore scenes, a girl being hung on a hook by her back. But again, the camera cuts away. Now, the reason they did this, Toby Hooper was hoping for a PG rating. He thought he could possibly get a PG rating if he had less blood <laughs> or no blood. Of course, that didn't, didn't happen. They ended up getting an R rating and often actually had its main playing on a Times Square in in porno theaters is where it got its biggest biggest clientele but it doesn't have gore it's i think it's kind of a fascinating aspect of how much it leads you to have your own nightmare well you know you bring up an interesting point 
the the fact that it had its most successful run in porn houses in Times Square, I think maybe brings up something, a recurring theme perhaps <laughs> in our discussions is the, the thin line between, you know, pornography and horror in the sense of exploitation. You know, obviously there's that old definition of porn's difficult to to define, you know it when you see it. But there's a there's a similar taint to it in my mind mm. of the kind of exploitative, you're welcome, exploitative quality, of especially a movie like Chainsaw, which to me just feels grotesque in the same way that hardcore pornography is grotesque. Can you describe that? <laughs> just like It's not that kind of podcast, though. <laughs> We're trying for a PG. <laughs> trying for a PG. Uh, and I think maybe that's, maybe in some ways that is the heart of my issue and maybe even why we're doing the podcast and and i'm this is something i'm going to discover as we talk throughout the the podcast series i'm sure i will explore more deeply where my resistance comes from but i think i'm starting to get a sense of, of what that is already in episode two so i think i'm because i likewise i'm trying to discover well, what is it i love about this film because it's it i can't help but agree with you that that there is the line for for sure, like the, those theaters playing porn and weird films on Times Square, we're doing usually like horror movies or softcore porn or whatever. Like, yeah, without a doubt. Like, what what is it about that? What, you know, why do I love this movie so much? Um, I, I and I think though the funny thing is, uh, you you talked about it having uh, no redeemable plot. Uh, or redeemable narrative. Yeah. But what terrifies me about this film, specifically actually the second half and as it moves forward, is it moves from a, a sense of uneasiness that is, I think, partly motivated by really cool camera shots that are sort of strange. And and also the art design is pretty wild. And, and the whole situation, you go from being like, all right, I'm away from home, at least our characters that we're riding with, we're away from home, but at least we're on the road. Oh, now we're kind of off the road. Oh, now we're further down a hill. We're way off the road. In fact, we're at a house that is so far off the road, they run on a generator. They are really off the grid. And that that is not safe anymore. We are in the unknown. And once we get there, it does become like a dream or like a nightmare. Things start to I mean, to make less sense than they should. Sally doesn't just jump through one window. She jumps through two windows to escape. Like it's a completely repeated beat. There's just sort of this bizarre nightmare that goes on. And that nightmare lasts the whole way through. And at the very end, our character escapes. She escapes in the nightmare as dawn arises is when we usually wake from a nightmare. But there's something that glints in her eye that maybe she's carrying a lot of that nightmare with us. But I wonder there, in the same way that dreams and nightmares don't have an orchestrated uh, theme, they, they, dreams and nightmares, even when we interpret them, it usually limits their power. That there's something to just allowing them to be a dream um, and allowing them to hold what either thrills us or terrorizes us. And so for this one, this is a nightmare. And I watch it and I experience that thrill without necessarily having to go, but did I learn something from this? Did this Has this made me a better human being? I don't know if I need that. That's a fair point. Uh, and I, I'm still, like I say, groping toward understanding my own feelings, not only about this film, but about the genre in general. Because there are plenty of films that I watch that that would I would be hard-pressed to defend on similar lines. The work of Michael Haneke, for example, one of my favorite filmmakers, 
a movie like Cachet or Code Unknown, or even Funny Games, uh, which I've watched both in its original language and in the English remake, oh which one could argue is as depraved oh, yeah. as, as Texas Chainsaw. So why do I defend that or that filmmaker and have such disdain for something like this? I, I don't have a good answer. Um, and hopefully through this podcast, I will stumble my way toward one, uh, or I'll just be one over to the dark side. <laughs> <laughs> but and I because I agree, I don't think that it, it needs it needs to have a lesson, but I do feel like it it has to be about something in the sense that Friday the 13th, I feel like is a it's about something. I understand the story there I, and I can identify, especially with the, the ending and you sort of reveal what this whole story was moving toward or Halloween. I feel like there's there's a there's a driving narrative there that I that I can get on board with. It's a train that I can get on and have an experience with, whereas this I. And again, I'm going to come back to your comparison. It just felt like porn where I guess the story doesn't matter. It's just about, can I shock you with visuals? Well, the story is, I think, actually really simple. And uh, uh, But I would say, actually, I think better than like Friday the 13th. The story is a girl trying to survive. Like, that's it. It's just, you know, she's trapped in a nightmare. And how does she get out? And the nightmare just becomes more and more intense. And even when she escapes, she doesn't escape. You know, the place she runs to when she runs back to the gas station and the cook uh, says she's going to help her and then puts her in a bag and, you know, is, drives her back to the house, poking her with a stick and giggling as he does. Yes. Great scene. You got to admit, that's a great scene. Uh, sure. Uh, <laughs> but I also keep coming back to the fact that, that, okay, if that's what this movie is, well, she doesn't even get to the house until what 30 minutes left in the film so we've had an hour of them just i don't know what they're doing hanging out uh and i just <laughs> i mean i get it don't get me wrong I, I i understand yes you had the youngest member of the family in the van and you had that sort of kicking that off um but if it's sally's story she doesn't do much till the last half hour and then well it's not just sally's story i mean <laughs> well and i will say too franklin uh franklin <laughs> oh franklin um I'm so glad he died. Uh, Sally, <laughs> Sally, uh, I will say she does, she does, she does terrorized quite well. Uh, you know, I, yes. I, I believed her performance it, so much so that there was a part of me that was, uh, you know, and and this is something you would know more than I do, but I know there was a sort of mythology around this movie that this was somehow based on true events, and I think even I believed that for a long time. You know, I'm from Texas, as you know. Uh, and so there was a kind of lore that this was this was real. And certainly right. her performance, it, it almost felt as though the, the filmmaker was was pulling a Kubrick or something and, and maybe thrust her into this environment without any preparation and just let her react because her reaction seems so authentic. Right. Well, let's see. There's there's uh, let, let me start with the first one, uh, the second one first. So there, there was a nightmarish feel on the set. Sometimes they were shooting in a Texas summer. For, and I was talking about that one scene, the, the dinner scene where she wakes up, she's tied to a chair. Um, there's grandpa. There's uh, the cook, there's a hitchhiker, and there's Leatherface, and they're all at the table together, and it's just nightmarish in itself. Now, because one of the actors was – that was their last day, um, and 
And I think the actor who was in the grandpa makeup was like, I'm never getting putting this stuff on again in my life. <laughs> they they had to keep filming and filming. And it was a 24-hour day of filming, basically. And the sun was baking down. And because the art director had used a lot of real meat, it was starting to turn. It was starting to rot. And all the actors involved in that shoot just say it started to just be crazy. It started to just go crazy. So I think a lot of the shots of her uh, in that since um that's yeah she's she's going crazy um like she's like i think she's allowing the uh the real stuff to to come through now weather is based on a real story so um it actually has the same bit of history that Psycho is based on. Based based on, of course, serial killer Ed Gein, who um, had killed a few people. We don't actually know how many. Robbed a lot of graves, including his mother's grave, and had a house just basically filled with art that he had made from corpses that he had stolen or people that he had killed. And uh, and it was and he was seen like such a nice, quiet guy. So Psycho uh, blocks. Uh, novel the guy who wrote the novel psycho he based it on ed Gein, and then texas chainsaw massacre was kind of based on that that's that's basically as much as you have to be based on this nothing happened with a family of cannibals or anything like that that we know of. that we know of yeah no and i will say the the production design is incredibly affecting to see the detail of all of the furniture and so forth but there again i felt the filmmaker clearly had spent so much time and money on the uh, set design that he had to make sure we saw it a lot and over and over again. That first scene when the first girl stumbles into the chicken room, yeah, it was about 30 to 45 seconds too long of, <laughs> okay, we get it. We see the bones. I love uh, let's it. move on. I love it, man. Or the, or Sally's eyeball. Now Sally's eyeball. Don't get, I, I really appreciated that that as a kind of filmic device getting that close to her eye yeah and it, the first time i was oh nice move nice move toby uh but then he did it again and again <laughs> and again uh, i felt like okay it's a an hour 23 minute running time you know you needed to sort of push it up to that feature length you had to put a couple more <laughs> images of their eyeball all the time well i mean who, the, that, who knows that could be true i'm i there's something when i watch this film i i mean i think toby hooper's a good filmmaker i wouldn't put him in in the ranks of some of the great filmmakers necessarily I, I don't know i don't know really if i if i would but i do consider this a great film i think there's like all these ingredients that come together to make a great film and to make one that's actually really terrifying there's a thing that a programmer once said before introducing this uh, film he said when i watched this as a kid it was the first time i realized oh horrible things happen to people even if they're good people and for no reason so i think for him the a little bit of the lack of uh, like a narrative drive it is part of the horror of it as opposed to for example like friday the 13th and like well they you know there's a reason that these people are dying. You know, there's a, I mean, actually even the initial Halloween, the, the original Halloween, there is no Michael Myers is hunting down his sister. And that's the reason. Michael Myers is just randomly killing people. It doesn't matter who they are. It has no, there's no reason. There's no plot in that way. And this is coming out of the 70s. And I think if you're uh, living in the 70s in, in, in America and you're seeing sort of the world going nuts and, and a war that has no reason that they can really figure out uh, and and all that bloodshed that's happening, I think there's sort of a, something that relates of like, oh, here's a nightmare about four people who didn't really mess up. They didn't, they didn't break a taboo. They didn't, they just 
they just wandered into the wrong place and now they're paying the price and it's their own country killing them. Um, I think there's something there that, that really resonated with people. And, and that last half hour is relentlessly terrifying. It's boom, 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 boom. And how they, they manage to that, that level of relentless terror, uh, I don't know. I think that's, that's crazy and wild and, and amazing filmmaking. And I can appreciate that. Uh, here's, here's the thing. And, and I think this is, again, this whole podcast concept is really about exploring my own issues. Uh, but, uh, I, I fully realize what you're saying and, and I find it compelling, a compelling argument. The idea that sometimes horrible things happen to quote unquote, good people for no reason. I put good people in quotes because no one's really good, but but in the sense of there not being any kind of moral. My issue, I think, is why do I want to watch that? That is true. I understand that. There are horrible things happening in the world every day. Uh, why do I want to subject myself to that for two hours? Is Maybe is in the same category of why I don't watch hardcore pornography. I don't want to subject myself to what is most often a kind of grotesque objectification of women, uh, if not violence toward women. We're talking about hardcore pornography or, or Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Yeah. <laughs> well, both. Uh, so, so it, and I, I understand that, that for some folks that's going to sound like a kind of moral argument, uh, a prudish argument, and maybe it is, but it's also a subjective sort of personal argument for, for why these movies i think disturb me not because they scare me though they do this one did certainly that first kill was a gasp inducing moment and 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 that's something again we'll probably come back to over and over again which is that horror movies can provide a kind of visceral physical experience in the same way that comedies can with laughter that a lot of movies can't and, and that's interesting but it's more just what am i consuming in terms of media and how is that sort of wiring my brain and what do I want to subject myself to? Uh, these are questions rattling around in my head. Yeah, it's a question. I mean, it's a, and it's an argument that's been made uh, in the idea of horror. I mean, you know, f f way before Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, you know, Vincent Price was brought on television uh, for a talk show and was sort of like, how could you be a part of this? Uh, you know, this is, look what what's doing to young people's minds. As if Vincent Price's campy movies were, were actually making violence when we were showing Vietnam on the on the nightly news. What I think is a film like this is saying like, hey, by the way, this is as real as Benji. This is this is a and that's sort of that's sort of an honest thing of like, yeah, you're right. This is you mean that. Chevy Chase talking dog? I, well, I wasn't talking about that talking dog, but I was talking about another 1974 film, Benji. <laughs> that um, that there's that like there's like uh, that we this is speaking about the world too. Like I go to film to often to be entertained and comforted, but also often kind of like show me something I haven't seen before. Tell me something about the world that I maybe would rather not know. Um, expose me to things that are hard. Now, of course, I've, you could say, well, why don't you watching a show that tells you about um, the evils of of uh, modern slavery and, and and motivates you to do something? But also, there's something sort of I think important about like show my nightmare back to me. Show them the nightmares of my culture back to me because I have something to learn from them. Uh, and then also just the, I think the process of like, I, I go through my nightmare, I scream, I yell, and now I have dealt with that. And this is something we'll talk about more, I'm sure too, but it's an experiment with mortality. I need to, I think, as a healthy human being, 
come face to face with my mortality in some way. As I was growing up, there watching movies, the usually movies I would usually watch, mortality was again, it was something that happened to the very, very old or someone who did something bad. Right, the good person, the hero, those people get away; they they don't die. The, and then when you watch a movie, you're like, "Oh no, it could come from anywhere. It can come from anywhere." It's like, "Oh, that's a true thing about mortality. That my death will come out of nowhere, and I cannot run fast enough. And it doesn't matter if I made all the right decisions, or if I'm nice, or if I'm the hero of the film. It's still going to get me. And so I can deal with this in an hour and a half and watch this film and go, "Oh, all right, I just had a the slightest dance." With mortality, and that's going to teach me more about how to be alive. Again, compelling argument, uh, and I I won't deny that it could serve that purpose. And again, I'm sort of working it through for myself. But there's a part of me that feels as though if I already understand my mortality, do I need that hour and a half object lesson, especially when it's wrapped in a piece of filmmaking that I find amateurish and at least structurally in terms of the narrative, incompetent. <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. I know this is a, a quote-unquote classic, but I'm, I'm thinking back to, you know, I watched Funny Games, the, yes. the Michael Hanukkah film, which falls firmly into the same category of, of, you know, you get to the end and think, what the hell did I just watch? Right. And why did I watch it? But I find his filmmaking craft so compelling, so fascinating. And when you talk about, I want to see something I've not seen before, when I put in a movie like Stalker, uh, on Tarkovsky's film mm. or uh, a movie like Funny Games, I'm seeing someone I trust completely to frame a shot, to tell a story, to use sound, to do the whole package in terms of giving me a cinematic experience. And I feel like Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre, all it gives me is grotesquerie and a few nice dolly moves. But otherwise, I'm not getting the full cinematic experience because of the kind of amateurish production values. Now, this this is this is going to be, uh, I think, something. This will continue as another theme. So, I think you said it with like you trust this filmmaker, and because you trust this filmmaker, he's going to show you stuff. And even if he's going to take you to the bad part of town or whatever, like you trust, he's going to get you home okay. What I love about uh, this film and some of the other indie horror movies is I do love that feeling of lack of trust that um... Yo, but I'm not saying I, I disagree. Uh, I, I don't trust that Hanukkah is going to give me back home. Okay. <laughs> I really don't. I don't know where he's going to take me. Yeah. And he can terrify me as a filmmaker. I'm just so enamored with his craft as a filmmaker. Funny games. Would you call that a, a horror movie? That's a great question. Cause it goes back to our earlier conversation. Yeah. Last episode. Uh, where if it's if I find it a good film, well, it can't be horror. The Shining's not horror; it's a thriller. Uh, um, but it, yes, yes, Funny Games, Funny Games is a horror movie. Yeah, I think I think I could say that. <laughs> you, you, I I could say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm cringing. Do you know? Uh, do you know what the original title of Texas Chainsaw Massacre was? The script? Uh, there was a script. Uh, no, oh, I boy. don't. I don't. Head know. cheese. Head cheese. Head cheese, yeah. Hmm. You know, I think I think I might have liked it better as a film <laughs> if it had been called Head Cheese. There's some well, something very Lynchian about that title. But then you know what? Lynchian is a great description for this film. I, I think that's a great you know, as insight. I said it, I thought, you know what? If David Lynch had made this movie, I'm not saying I'd like it better, because you and I we have a long history of disagreeing about David Lynch. 
but I think I would find it more compelling. I am a snob, I'm realizing. I'm a film snob. You're just now realizing this? Yes, uh, yes, Russell, uh, you, you are a snob. Uh, but that's okay. That's, that, you know, that's, that we need, we need folks like you. So let me, do let me we, ask you this. Do what, we need, do we need <laughs> folks like me? I'm not so sure. <laughs> why do, why do you think like this movie uh, got such a reaction from audiences and still does? When I would say that like many, many a more, your words, competent film um, that has a, a beautifully structured screenplay and, and more competent filmmakers, again, your words, is forgotten. Like, wh- why has this remained and resonated? Well, I think for the same reason, Night of the Living Dead w- was a hit. Um, because we were, as you've said before, we were seeing things we had not seen before. Uh, I don't know the history of horror the way you do, but I definitely got the sense, even watching it now, that this kind of on-screen macabre uh, mise-en-scene, well, there you go, huh? There's the snob. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> was uh, was new, you know, and, and people were like, holy crap. Did you see that, you know, that crazy movie with the furniture made out of bones and the guy with a chainsaw and a butcher block? Um, you know, those kinds of ideas that now, honestly, are sort of done. They're they're commonplace. We've become desensitized, I think, to that, which is why I think movies like Saw, for example, another series that I have never seen and hope you don't make me watch, um, <laughs> were hugely popular because they were just, you know, it's like we've built this tolerance to this kind of imagery and we keep having to ratchet it up. Because frankly, you know, I, I you know, despite, you know, being genuinely scared at certain moments in the sense of being surprised, you know, the 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 old man mask was pretty clearly a rubber mask. You know, there was mm-hmm. it 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 didn't fool me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the girl hanging on the hook, it, it was pretty clear she was not actually hanging on a hook. Uh, so it was easy to detach for me. But film film goers in the mid seventies, having not seen anything like that before, I would assume it'd be much more difficult for them to detach. I still remember the story of Spielberg screening Jaws for the first time. And someone running out of the theater and throwing up in the lobby when the shark ate the kid mm. in that beach scene. Uh, it's hard for me to imagine Jaws having that kind of visceral effect now. Oh, right. People people fainted when uh, Frankenstein was uh, – the monster was first revealed in, in Frankenstein. It's amazing to think about those experiences, like first-time experiencing that film. When we could go back to the Lumiere brothers and the train entering the station. People ran out of the theater thinking they were about to be run over by a freight train. Right, yeah. It's taken us some time collectively to acquire this cinematic language, and now we're all fluent, and we're adding to it all the time, of course – but those innovations take some getting used to. Hmm. Okay. I wonder too, though. I gotta say, and I, I think what you're saying is 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 correct. I think we're correct. Like the the audiences were reacting to this because it is something that they hadn't seen before. At the same time, uh, you know, and after this, in the '70s and '80s, of course, we had a huge amount of slashers. Everything from Michael Myers, as you mentioned, and Jason, but there's so many other ones too. Just like these ones that were played at drive-ins and played at small theaters or then in the 80s went straight to video that just haven't resonated and they 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 don't have what this film has even when they steal so many different elements they don't have a couple of things for example they don't have as compelling a central figure i mean it's it's wild that leatherface is such an icon of this very 
you know, uh, cheap film, this very inexpensive film as opposed to cheap, this, that, that this uh, weird skin wearing character has, has remained an iconic image for us, um, which is pretty interesting. And then also, I, I think actually, again, like the, the lack of gore is sort of fast and made for better shots It forced them into better filmmaking. And, and uh, I don't know, there's something again for that last, you No, know, it's interesting. And I'm going to sound like an old man here, but uh, to go back to jaws, the, the classic example of turning a liability into an advantage where the shark, you know, doesn't famously doesn't work. Right. Uh, and so he has to shoot around it and stumbles upon this sort of epiphany that the less you show, the the terrifying monster the more terrifying it is and i feel that and you may be right that that chainsaw despite what we do see uh, so much of it is what we don't i wonder if we've lost some of that in more modern horror films that especially those that fall into that category that has been coined torture porn to go back to pornography like saw that that seem to relish in showing you everything and leaving nothing mm -hmm. to the imagination well, I think that's going to, we should talk about that more. There's going to be some films, including maybe, maybe, maybe some David Fincher we get into, maybe, uh, maybe even Sinister that was from Scott Derrickson and Robert Cargill. I, th I think that, that do a really great job of showing us enough to terrorize us and not showing us everything. I mean, like Saw, basically. Saw is, is seven, but in seven, where we never see any of the crimes happen. Uh, we never see any of the the actual torture take place. We just see the remnants of it. Mm. Saw just shows us it. Yeah. <laughs> so seven is Cinemax, <laughs> and Saw is hardcore porn. <laughs> I, I'm guessing you're not going to go ahead and and seek out Texas Chainsaw Massacre two, which you already saw. I already saw it. Yeah, so I'm good. A, a lot more comedy in that one. I have a feeling a lot of the later ones are more tongue in cheek. Uh, some of them are. That one was very much tongue-in-cheek. Toby Hooper was like, I guess maybe in the same way that James Whale approached Bride of Frankenstein, of like, I've been here. If I'm going back to it, I'm I'm going to do it a bit tongue-in-cheek. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, uh, and then I believe The Next Generation was the next one. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 4 with Matthew McConaughey and Renee Zellweger. Right. Filmed in the same house where I filmed Mercy Black, actually. Well, of course. Kim, Kim Henkel directed that one. Uh, and then they they uh, they remade it. Michael Bay's company, Platinum Dunes, remade Texas Chainsaw Massacre, followed it up with a, uh, a sequel, which was a prequel, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Beginning. Then there was a Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3D, which played as a direct sequel to the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, and then they made another one called Leatherface, which I haven't seen, which had a limited theatrical and uh, I think is- That's is probably the good one. <laughs> so yeah it hasn't been the most su successfully the it's not the best of the fran like as a franchise some of these some films like as a franchise you're like ooh, that franchise uh this one's kind of been a bit spotty and all over the place but launched the career of of, of toby hooper uh, unfortunately didn't do a lot for the other folks involved uh there was a lot of like um maybe uh shady distribution companies uh involved maybe a little uh gangsters who knows uh, the money did not get to a lot of the actors a lot of the actors remember seeing like variety ads saying how much money texas chainsaw massacre had bought in and since they had all sort of made it for basically dimes and and said don't worry with when the movie makes money then you'll get money they're like oh what happened and there was a lot of 
lawsuit. So maybe for them, that was the true horror. All right. Well, we should pr- probably wrap this up. Let's do it. Um, and I think maybe it, would, it might be helpful if you had to name your least favorite scene in the film and I had to name my favorite scene okay. in, in the movie. Yes. So why, why don't you go first? You tell me where you could see maybe some faltering in the filmmaking, your least favorite. Okay. So, you know, it, there's, I, I do understand what you're saying about it being there's a little bit of slow stuff at the beginning. But the moment that sort of gets me is, you know, the, the group of four, they go to an old house that was Sally's grandparents' house. And they're sort of talking about like, oh, yeah, I used to come here and everything. For me, that kind of loses it. I'm like, come on. You didn't. That house has been empty for like 100, maybe 70 years. Like it's and I always sort of like, oh, I don't believe that you ever went there. <laughs> that's it. That's my only. That's my okay. only. Uh, uh, Franklin coming in and blowing raspberries for half an hour. That didn't get you. All right. We'll move on. Um, Franklin's raspberries were brilliant. I, I salute that actor. Man, come on. <laughs> so my favorite, I have to say my favorite scene, and I kind of can't believe I'm going to say this, is the scene of Leatherface alone in the living room. There, and I, you know, I referenced it before, you referenced it before, but it really caught me by surprise that that moment where I felt like we should have cut to, to something else. He's supposed to stay a mystery, a kind of faceless ogre, but we get that moment of kind of vulnerability, <laughs> Uh, which was really affecting. Uh, so I thought that was not only smart filmmaking, but a nice little bit of performance. Um, yeah. By the way, that's right after, and I feel like it was motivated by the fact that he he clobbers the driver of the van. Again, mm-hmm. I don't remember any of their names. I think it's Paul. Yeah. And I think Paul gets away. It seems to suggest Paul gets away and Leatherface is sort of concerned. But we never see him again. No, Paul doesn't get away. You you watch it again. You go back and watch. I think Paul gets away. He hits him, and then he turns around, and Paul's gone, and that's why he's kind of freaking out. And I kept waiting for Paul to show back up. And um, you know, um, no, you're you're gravely Paul. mistaken. You're you're gonna want to edit I'm, this out. Just I am <laughs> sure there are thousands of people listening to this podcast. <laughs> I laugh at my own grandeur uh, who are going to disagree with me, but that's what it seemed like to me. Just it's it's it, it's meant to be like, it's the moment when Leatherface, who's the sort of mom of the family, you know, of course he's he's often, you know, he's skin-wise, he's a transvestite. He dresses in oh, women's yeah. skin. Up like the old lady, I, yeah. Yeah, I caught and, uh, and, and he, so he's like, why are all these kids, why are they all these kids invading my house? Oh no, what to do? Uh, all right, so um, we <laughs> should talk about next uh, next week's podcast. We okay, we need so to pick a movie. I have been thinking long and hard. By this, by the way, what the greatest gift you've ever given to me, and you've given me good gifts through the years, Russell. But being able to to curate my own f- film festival for Russell, and 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 to tantalize and torture you simultaneously, that's <laughs> just, just it's it's really delightful. Back to the porn. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I've been thinking like the, the first two films we've done have been uh, very much independent films uh, and were made on a smaller budget. But they also dealt with in some ways, at least with a bit of body horror. We talked about the body horror of the the zombies and uh, of the Oful that they are chomping upon in, in Night of the Living Dead. There's a little body horror, I guess you could say, in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. 
So this next one was like, well, what is something that kind of deals a little bit with body horror, has more of a polished feel, is a studio movie, and is made by one of the masters. So I'm choosing a John Carpenter film from 1982. Happens to be a remake. I Many people with me would believe that this is the finest John Carpenter film. It's The Thing. Okay, here's The Thing. Uh, no pun intended. I've never seen The Thing. This is a movie that... I have been wanting to see for years and I keep, I think it was even on Netflix for a while. It's one of the films that everyone talks about as in the same category of alien or the shining, a kind of cinematic masterpiece that just happens to be horror. So I could not be more excited. I am actually looking forward to seeing the thing. Okay. That was such an insulting uh, description. Uh (laughs) All I'm saying is I'm looking forward to it. Oh, I'm so glad you are. I, uh, I'm i looking forward to watching it again, too. I, I love this movie. I'm actually kind of embarrassed I've not seen this one. <laughs> but you're ashamed that now you have seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> We're learning so much about each other. All right, so that's it for episode two of The Horror. Uh, Owen, where can we find you out there in the world? Probably the easiest thing is Twitter. My handle is Owen, O-W-E-N, underscore Edgerton, E-G-E-R-T-O-N. And you can find me at at Russell Sharman, all one word. Thanks so much, Owen, for, I guess, introducing me to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Well, I'm glad you got to experience it. I, you know, it's, it's going to be important in your life more than you know. <laughs> I look forward to that time. <laughs>